basically it could be seen as a volumetric capture system. Although the one that I worked on at Intel is a very different kind of system, although it's, it looks similar when I saw it. So basically how it's set up is that they have multiple cameras everywhere and then they have a system or program that kind of uh, has a set program that kind of captures the footage in a set way that makes it useful. G'day everyone, Craig Rowe from People With A Passion and thanks for taking the time to be here to watch this episode. If you haven't yet supported the channel by hitting the subscribe button and notification bell, could you please take a moment right now to do so to support the growth of the channel so I can continue to do what I'm doing. It'd be really appreciated. Today's guest is Vicky Lau, who is a video effects producer and artist who's worked on some of the world's biggest uh, blockbuster films of recent times, including Aquaman, The Guardian's Guide to the Galaxy, The Planet of the Apes, and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And she's also worked on the TV series The Walking Dead, and she's done some work in the gaming space as well on the VR platform Oculus Rift. So she's going to share some of those secrets around Hollywood and visual effects today in today's episode. And she's also created a platform where people can learn some of the secrets that Hollywood have around the visual effects space. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode, whether you be listening and or watching. There is B-roll in the YouTube edition of this uh, podcast. So if you are listening on the podcast platform and want to see some of the visuals, then I'd encourage you to watch the YouTube version if you get the chance. Thanks for being here. I hope you enjoyed today's episode with guest Vicky Lau. Today's episode is brought to you by Applaudable.net. Vicky Lau, thanks for joining us on People With A Passion today. You're a visual effects specialist and also work and have worked on a number of projects, games, movies and things like that and been involved as a visual effects director and you're also educating people on this space. So this is something that you've heavily invested in over a number of years. Do you want to tell us where your journey started in this space? Well, basically, I'm originally from Singapore, so very different from US, Hollywood, stuff like that. Um, when I was younger, I was really a quiet, introverted kid. I didn't really have any friends because I was so quiet. Um, so one day when I was 14, I was given like a camcorder. And that's when I realized that, sure, I may not you know, be comfortable speaking to people, but I could use this as a means to kind of express my thoughts and ideas. So that sort of slowly transitioned and grew from a love for filmmaking to video editing and then visual effects. Um, so yes, yeah, so that's how I got started. And then obviously the transition to the US, I actually pursued visual effects as a kind of like a major or a study. And then that's how everything kind of unfolded um, in America since mm. then. Do, do you want to explain to people what I mean, it sounds like it's something everyone should know, but do you want to, in, in, you know, explain for people what visual effects may entail? Like, obviously, we've seen things on television and movies and things, but it, it's a broad, there's a, it covers a broad range of things that are in a visual arts perspective. So do you want to expand on what visual effects actually are and, and may incorporate? Um, so basically, visual effects is a very broad, well, as you kind of covered as well as like a, an artistic field, but at the same time, it has a technical component. So, for example, it could involve 3D, it could involve 2D moving images, anything that has to do with editing an image that moves. So 
um, video editing is a form of visual effects. If you add maybe something uh, additional layer, okay, this is probably getting too complex right here. But yeah, so there's different types of visual effects. It's all about making um, something that's not real look like it's real in the most simplistic terms. So yeah. So it's adding and or removing features of something that would normally be there and and it could be any aspect that you know is is something that you want to add to footage and or even remove so it could even be just that there's artifacts or, or lighting yep. that needs to be modified or it's working a project to ensure that it looks as real as it possibly can without detracting from a, a story do i understand that sort of approach correctly yes yep you got it okay awesome so so you did that from a very young age you studied it and you became proficient at it obviously enough that you've worked in the film industry in Hollywood so some of the projects that you've worked on what are some of the projects that people may be aware that that wouldn't be aware necessarily that you've been involved but <laughs> that but that you've had a hand in well um let's see that's the walking dead i don't know if you guys watched that but um there's also Guardians of the galaxy aquaman war for the planet of the apes etc etc yeah so how how look they're all this is one thing that's um interesting is they're all different movies and they're all requiring different effects so how do you uh approach each project knowing that it's different because you've got to have an imagination i guess for that environment and creating an environment that may not actually exist in the real world so you must have a good imagination well excellent question it depends on your role in visual effects so i think we covered earlier how there's a lot of different variety and types of visual effects it is part of the and the giant visual effects umbrella um so if your role is sort of in the closer to after production has been done you will have uh, that hand in creating the shots actually and kind of planning how the visual effects would look. At the same time, there are visual effects people who are mainly towards the end of the visual effects execution where they are just putting things together that are already pre-planned and pre-designed. So again, a huge spectrum. So have you worked on both sides of those spectrums? So you yeah. might find yourself in a role where you're, you're more pre-production and then you find yourself in a role where you may be what we call post-production? How coordinated does that have to all be? Because it's not, it's when you look at the credits, not that a lot of people read them. Yes. <laughs> at the end of a movie, it's nice that people are looking for their own name probably in the movie industry. You go, oh, that's my name. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, it's a long list of, of people that have to come together to produce the storylines and the production ultimately. So how does it work on set with, the coordination of different you know departments i guess or sections of of movie creation because you're just one aspect of many so where do you fit in that big jigsaw puzzle well um again it is like you notice that a lot of my answers will be it depends on the production because it really does so uh it depends on your role and the production so for example if i am a visual effects supervisor then most of my efforts would be on set with the director and with the uh cinematographer working with the green screen and the stuff that's on set. But if I'm, let's say, a compositor or a 3D model artist or, you know, texture artist, I would probably never be on set and I'll just be mainly looking at a computer screen with what the footage that's coming from production. So, yeah, it, it really depends. It's quite broad. You're working in conjunction with a director, obviously, to get the correct effect. What do you have to know if you're directing i guess that means that you're 
it's not that you're not hands-on. You, you obviously are because you're checking angles and you're checking behind the scenes and the camera with the director probably and, and saying this is how this needs to work if they're reshooting things, if it's not working out. What of post-production, how, how do you approach that process? Because you'd be working with programmers and, and visual effects art, artists, I guess, and you'll be directing them as opposed to necessarily, and I know you do have computer programming behind you, but yeah. um, you're obviously not the person that's doing the programming in those roles. Um, so if I understand your question, you're asking what a visual effects supervisor would be doing yes. in post, right? Okay, so, so <laughs> again, broad, because there are different types of visual effects supervisors. There's the on-set ones, which only go on set, they never ever see the computer screen. And then there's the post-production supervisors, which again, they never, they rarely, not never, but rarely go on set, and they're mainly behind the computer screens. Um, uh, yeah, and it really depends on the studio itself. So for example, if I'm the visual effects supervisor attached to the production, um, I would probably only go, you know, check out the artist team in post maybe once a week or even just through Skype like this right now. Um, but if I were in charge of post production and I'm supervising that, then again, I'll probably be with the artist more than the supervisor on set. And do the directors interact with those same artists as well? Or are they trusting that the director of the visual effects is actually there to do their job and they understand what's required? Good question. Um, because the director is usually pulled in all sorts of directions, sound, music, you know, they have to be everywhere all the time. Uh, they, they will have to trust their supervisor, the visual effects supervisor or the post-production supervisor to kind of understand their vision and convey that to the artist. So how much do you know of the programming side of things? Because if you're supervising artists, they, you, you, you're trusting them to do their job as well. But at the same time, you have to understand and know a degree of what they're actually doing yes. so that there's no, no one's pulling the wool over anyone's eyes, I suppose, that, that you know if something's possible, you want to make it happen. You want to know that they've got, A, the ability to do it, but you also have to understand the software to know that that's doable. So what software background do you actually have? What do you work with? Uh, so basically, um, I use After Effects, which again, anyone can use After Effects. The one that the industry uses, which I also use, which is also for visual effects compositing, is called Nuke. So kind of like the explosion Nuke, you know, but, but a good thing. Um, so yeah, those are two softwares. In addition, there's Maya that I also use. There's 3ds Max, uh, like a, a lot of software. I can list them all, but th those are the general ones that I use for visual effects. Yeah, so your knowledge on on all this is it has to be you have to almost be a you are a master of it, and we'll come to that because you actually do run a masterclass. So later in the interview, we'll get onto what you're actually doing to help others work in this space and and expose them to you know the industry and and what opportunities may exist, and we'll come to that as well. So you're not just in the movie space or haven't yeah. worked in movie and commercial. You're actually working games as well. So one of the things I think that sparked your interest several years ago is Oculus Rift and the, all the possibilities around, uh, you know, virtual reality. So let's talk a little bit about VR. So you've worked in movies with 3D and, um, and all those sorts of effects and, you know, everything from a muzzle flash to creating a, a, an existing thing that's not there. Yeah. <laughs> Something that does, that's not real becomes real. But what of a gaming space? Because gaming is really starting with a blank canvas. So what and what's driven you into that virtual reality and gaming space as well? 
Excellent question. Um, so I really fell into VR by accident. I didn't actively seek out to be part of VR. Basically, what happened was the visual effects jobs at the time back in, let's see, 2000, late 2014, 2015, which is around the time Oculus was kind of released, um, in the jobs dried up. And then this VR startup in LA approached me and said, hey, you know, we need someone to do this. Can you do this? And I was like, well, yeah, why not? So, so I jumped in and then it just happened and kind of I happen to be good at it, and that's how I fell into VR. Um, so yeah, that's my background on that. <laughs> yeah. So so you attempted to launch a game, or did with a startup, and it wasn't as successful as you'd hoped. But then the whole Oculus Rift platform, not saying it's not, um, I, I think it's ahead of its time, and yeah. uh, take some technological changes for it to become a bigger reality. And I'm obviously doing podcasting, and if everyone thinks back that. Podcasts have been around since 2004 when it was first, the term was first coined, but it's actually only, you know, in the last two or three years that it's really taken off and it's seeing 30 to 60% growth. So where do you see VR right now as far as that trajectory? Because it is really, we think like to think it's been around a little while and people haven't latched onto it, but yes. it's sort of lagging in the, the it's, it's improving, but where do you think we are in that and where do you think it's headed? Well, I get asked that a lot and I would say that it's always changing because something like VR technology is always rapidly changing. Um, it takes a while for people to adopt it as a, something they need. Right now, it is just a want. You know, if I have enough cash, if I'm bored, I'll just go and get a VR device. They don't need it. So in order to reach that point, it has to be so pivotal to our existence that we have to get it and we'll die without it. Well, not really, but but yeah. Um, so I would give it an estimate. I mean, again, estimates could always be wrong. And this is just me projecting how, yeah. you know, seeing that technology is changing. Um, I would say about seven years time, when people will kind of be more open to having it, not only because they want it, but maybe because there's some need that has been established or is being established right now for it. So, yes. Do you think the technology is lagging still? Like there are technologies or do you think it's a cost factor? Like a lot of early adopters might find that they're spending money on something, whereas it takes time for those costs to come down for the average person to say, yeah, I'm actually going to go and purchase that because it's cheaper. Yeah, it's definitely the cost factor. I think technology, um, I guess maybe because I'm a little bit biased, I've seen like the things they haven't released yet. It's just that price is really high. I, I definitely say it's the cost factor and also, you know, the fact there isn't enough content to justify people really wanting to have it right now. So, but definitely the cost factor. Yeah. We mentioned Oculus Rift and talk about games in that genre or that category. But what do you see as the future for VR as well with, you know, real life situation? Like right now, a lot of people are locked, you know, away in their yeah. home. We've got kids being homeschooled. Do you see that there's a future of schooling where kids are putting on VR and they're actually being educated via VR like they're in a classroom, but they may well be sitting at home? Um, yes, I think there's a huge potential in that. Um, although we cannot kind of... Uh, we can't say that people will never go out forever because, you know, as humans, we do like to touch and feel and go out and, and experience the real world. But there will be a, a time and a place where VR will be handy in that sense where it allows you to reach places that you can't get to or that's inaccessible. And at the same time, um, it's really convenient in that sense. I do think that the real potential here, and this is probably one of the reasons why 
Facebook acquired Oculus is in social media. Because if you noticed, um, social media has grown from, you know, being an offline kind of thing where you just post something, you forget about it, to becoming more real time, right? There's podcasts, there's this streaming thing that we're doing, or this kind of live chat thing that we're doing right now. So it's becoming more real time. And you can't get any more real time than VR because you're literally immersed in that space and in those 360 experience. So that's my take on it. Yeah. The next level from VR is holographics. And we've been told this yeah. is coming and has been coming for a long time. And there are some good examples of the technology. But again, is that a cost factor? And how would, how does that interaction, is that something that you think is possible and, and practical? Like this concept of holographics or maybe just for messaging like something out of Star Wars? <laughs> well, um Let's see, that's a little bit tougher to say because even right now with things like the HoloLens, which is actually not really holographic, you're still wearing something, right? Um, is Okay, yeah, definitely there's always going to be the cost factor in there, but I think it's also the use case. Like, what can we use with holographics that makes it useful enough for people to want to, again, you know, bypass it, that cost factor, which probably they would not right now, to get it? Um, so, so, yes, there's a lot of promise there, although right now, Compared to VR, VR is still a little bit stronger in terms of development. Yeah. Probably coming before holographics, I should have brought this one up, augmented reality. So we've oh, already, yes. Yes. Like, like so we're, we're interacting with our real world through the lens of our device or whatever it might be, and it's um, normally, it can be game-related. So Pokemon Go would be probably yeah. an example that everyone would, would be familiar with but may not realise what it actually is, this concept of, augmented reality that when you hold your phone up you see something that isn't there and you interact and or engage with it have you worked in augmented reality well um very few just my personal projects um but i kind of know the distinction between the two it, having been in vr more you know it's easy to tell like oh okay this is ar vr blah 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 so yeah is it gimmicky do you think augmented reality has its place in the world or do you think it's a it's one of the things that was spruiked probably a decade ago. It's been around a while. Yes. But do you actually think that it's literally gimmicky, that it's it doesn't have any... I mean, it worked with Pokemon Go because it's a <laughs> game. Is that where it's sort of going to see its life and potential death if VR takes over? Well, I think it depends. Again, maybe because we don't have enough creators finding a good use case for AR. I do think that it is not as gimmicky as it sounds because for let's say for example you go to a shop if somebody has invented this you know hooray but you go to a shop you take out your phone you scan or you scan or you kind of hover over it and it shows all the detailed nutrition facts whatever of the item i think that is a good use case for ar you're still augmenting your reality but it's just presenting data that is not there you know without your device to kind of see it so uh, it really depends on what content is out there right now yeah so there are examples of of that people might not be aware of with augmented reality for translation where people yeah. hold up their phone and it'll actually show a language and it'll translate the language to their language and things like that so there are some practical uses of ar um just a question from a programming perspective when you're doing these games because i saw a test of one of your games where you had dinosaurs and things like that yeah. so uh how much does AI and programming incorporate a degree of 
artificial intelligence from the interactions that you're having with an environment because there has to be a degree of intelligence behind yes. the interaction so where does ai come into the picture of of, of you know vr and and these sorts of creations well that's an interesting also a tough question because so my background is not really in ai but if i were to speculate from the gaming or game development standpoint ai has always been very hot in the gaming world. Um, so I guess when it comes to VR, it's mainly about reading and understanding the user's input and then giving something useful in return, depending on how the program is designed. So maybe if I'm in a VR world, and let's say I'm in VR social chat, um, I'm thinking of something uh, like maybe I'm searching for something in VR, it'll, it'll, the AI will suggest certain things that they are guessing that I'm looking for. So that's a, an example, I suppose, of it. Use yeah. So where does a visual effects type specialist get utilised in games? Because you have worked with some gaming companies, but where do you fit going from a movie environment into the actual, you know, gaming environment? What advice and, and what benefit does a gaming company have for someone with your expertise? Well, um, actually, it's more about adapting. So even though my background is in film for visual effects. The thing about games is that they need everything in very light formats. Like as in, you can't have a really intense visual effects scene in a game. If not, you'll probably severely lag the game. So it's really about simply understanding all that that heavy weight visual effects you did in film is not going to apply to games. So you have to do a switch. So I suppose the benefit is since you've done the opposite end of the spectrum, you know, understanding what not to do is basically what you've done for film. So you just switch. So as a child, did you ever think for a moment that you'd be doing what you're doing? Was it, you said you had your camera early, but when you think about what you've achieved at your um, young age, I'm assuming you're quite young, you look young. So yeah, I hope I haven't sold it anyone there. But um, yeah, at, at this age, like looking back from your journey, did you ever imagine you'd have the opportunities that you've actually had given the you know career path you chose? Um. No, actually, I mean, I've always, when I was younger, and this is when I was even younger than 14, I was thinking about, you know, I've always been into mystery and problem solving, being a detective. Um, but I guess in some sense, you know, visual effects is problem solving, but I would not have anticipated that it would, I would have scaled up to that magnitude so quickly. Um, so, yeah. Okay. So you you say this is your passion. What's the other ROIs other than financial for you? I like the way you put it, ROIs. I also I also think that way. So what's the return on investment? Um basically, um it's like basically based on what I've mentioned, my history is about self-expression. So visual effects to me is like giving you that tool to allow you to create a reality that's not possible in real life. So that to me has a lot of personal benefits because I could feel like Especially when I was younger, when I didn't have any friends, you know, I could create something that is all of my own volition and I could call it my own. So it gives me that feeling of satisfaction knowing that I was able to not only express myself, but also kind of control my reality in the sense of manipulating it visually. So, yeah. So you, you have a demo that you provide to studios of um, some of your work and, and one of those is actually like a, a man painting. And, yeah. and into the painting to show some of your abilities to to create and direct a narrative or a storyline. So, where did the inspiration to create that demo for, as a 
as a part of your portfolio come from that storyline? Oh, okay. So, the, so that one is, um, I, I had an idea for a long time. I believe it was 2012, actually, but I wasn't able to execute it. No, actually, I had it, well, 2010. I wasn't able to execute it until like years later when I had the resources. So that idea came from, it's again, a very similar form of self-expression. To me, it's like, are you, you know, are you someone that's going to chase after your passion or are you going to sit there and let reality kind of consume and control you in that sense? So the painter, uh, which is the short film, is all about this guy uh, taking control of his reality. But of course, there's a downside to it. So it's a fair assessment of like, if you want too much power in this painting world, you know, the painting will absorb you and suck you in. So, so yeah. yeah. And, and that um, I'll show some footage of, of what we're talking about there so that the audience understands what yeah. we're actually speaking about. So, uh, yeah, so you do provide these studios with uh, content to demonstrate your abilities. Is that the way you get into the industry is uh, to, to demonstrate your abilities and pitch them to those organizations or do they approach you or is it a bit of both? It's a bit of both. Initially when I just started it was hard to have people take me seriously because number one I'm from another country and number two I just started right so um, you have to really have a good portfolio and then once that is out especially since my first break into Hollywood and my first industry job was The Walking Dead, that's when people approach you. Um, so you had to break in and then people approach you in so some how sense. Did you, so how did you break in through that process of, of showing your work and, and getting the opportunity with the studio to actually then demonstrate on set that you have the ability to do the job? Well, basically, um, I never gave up when it came to reaching out to people. So initially, before I got into The Walking Dead, I had my demo reel, which was already good for a student. So I just submitted it. There was no response. You have to be okay with rejection when, it, when you're first starting out. So, um, so after a while, you know, it just happened. I, it's hard to, hard to kind of retrace those steps, but, but yeah. Well, and then you start to develop. I imagine a body of work that then becomes easy and, and commercial work, which then becomes easier as a demonstration of your abilities that, that if another studio is looking for someone, they're going to yeah. then say, well, they did work on this. I think you should get this individual. So you're starting to get a reputation for yourself and then hopefully word of mouth and your work combined have people yeah. chasing you. So obviously working on the planet of the apes and, TMNT, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yeah, yeah. How many people would be involved in a production, would you say, in the post-production and, and pre-production on set? Is it the number that you would be privy to on, on those things outside of just the actors? Um, only when you get to the credits. So yeah. if anyone watches the credits, you'll see like, okay, a few names and then suddenly a whole huge throng of names just everything is just covered with names that's usually the visual effects department so if you work at a at a studio you'll you you'll kind of see who is there you count the number of people but really what happens in a big production is they have multiple visual effects houses so there's a lot of unseen people that's also doing visual effects that you don't know about so okay you've gone a step further now and you've done a number of works but you've decided that you want to help others uh, break into the industry and use your knowledge and share it with others. So do you want to talk to us a little bit about why you've taken this path of education uh, now and what you're actually offering? Well, um, so I still do visual effects besides teaching, but the teaching thing really came to me because 
to be honest, number one, I wanted to have a way to remember the skills I learned just in case. You know? <laughs> so I created something for myself. But number two, I've always felt that the Hollywood industry, especially visual effects, actually just filmmaking in general, they always have this elusive secrets or insights that you know people don't know about unless you're inside. So I figured, you know, why not democratize this information and insights and knowledge that I've gained and kind of help people who are from other countries usually want to, you know, get into this field and they don't have the education or the school or the resource to get to mm -hmm. um, into visual effects. So, yeah, so it's really about democratizing that information that they're, they're trying to keep within, basically. Yeah. So, so what are you actually offering as education? So is it a platform? Is it a masterclass or how would you describe what you're, you've put together? So it would be courses online that I have on various platforms. So I don't create a platforms myself, although they'll be good because, you know, platform fees, whatever. But I feel like the main point is just to get the content out there as quickly as possible. So it's mainly different courses focusing on different types of visual effects, whether it's visual effects compositing, different software tools that's covered as well, um, the production part of visual effects. So, yeah, so various stuff. There's a visual effect that we see in a lot of, movies and even commercials and where you have a cent central action or or character and, and we saw it in the matrix a lot where they do the 360 view yeah. of of the individuals and things do you want to sh share a little insight into the process that goes into producing an effect like that is that easy easily explained uh no well i mean like compared to post my on-set experience is less than my post, but basically it could be seen as a volumetric capture system. Although the one that I worked on at Intel is a very different kind of system, although it's, it looks similar when I saw it. So basically how it's set up is they have multiple cameras everywhere, and then they have a system or program that kind of uh, has a set program that kind of captures the footage in a set way that makes it useful. Um, that's as far as I know how that works. <laughs> so, yeah. so it's software driven? Yes. Yeah. So, cause we see that in a lot of movies. I've always wondered what the, what the process of producing that is. And we're seeing it more, obviously the technology of those effects, someone creates the movie and then it, the effect was expensive to create initially. And then you see the other studios either fine tuning, adapting or modifying and the cost of whatever was produced starts to come down and again, commercially viable. Um, so have you seen that transition over time in the industry where you're actually seeing these things that, you know, 10 years ago were more expensive? Like that's probably one example. Would you seeing that commonly where they're getting, making breakthroughs all the time that make the job easier to reproduce an effect? Yes, um, and also the price point is probably dropping. So, for example, another thing is motion capture systems. You know, the rigs where you wear a black suit with all the lights shining on you. Well, actually, lights emanating from you. Um, so those used to cost like thousands of dollars, and it's only for high-end production studios. But nowadays, there's a lot of startups which help kind of bring the price down and help make it more accessible to independent filmmakers. So, so yes. So one of the technologies that is also a visual effect that is getting some concern, particularly from uh, security agencies, is deep fake technology. Oh, yes. Yeah. So where people can pretend to be someone else just by mapping a few features of their face and the face gets attached to you. And we see this in 
already we're seeing these sorts of things in, in ap applications like TikTok. So 10 years ago, that would be something that would have been very hard for anyone, let alone a studio, to produce. So we're seeing that technology now on our mobile devices. Um, I know that there was a, a movie, I think, with Will Smith made recently uh, where, okay, yeah. where they mapped his younger face onto him and he was acting the two roles of himself and himself, but right. 20, you know, 20 or 30 years younger than he currently is. And he said that it was, I saw him in an interview, he was interviewed and said it was one of the um, scariest experiences he's ever had watching the film at the end or the, because it was so, for him, it was so real and it really took his character back to that age because of what they did with the mapping of his, his face, face. So is that a space? I know you haven't probably yet worked in that, but have you looked into these sort of features and things that are, are coming in because they may come into, you know, use in your, your job? Um, yeah, actually, it's been around for a long time already, um, especially when it comes to, for example, the curious case of Benjamin, Benjamin Button. And that was a movie that was a long time ago. I don't know how long. But but yeah, it's been around in visual effects for a while. I personally just haven't worked on it. But yeah, the, the concept is, is kind of similar to creating uh, or kind of scanning the person's face into a 3D software and then correctly mapping it onto the face, composing it. So So yeah, that's how the process is. But that's cool. So yeah, <laughs> it is cool. But potentially yeah. we could pretend to be the somebody else. Yeah, yeah. United States down the track, and that's where the concern is. I think for for uh, social media um, and also for security agencies is their concern is that you know people will be pretending to be someone on social media during elections and things, saying things that they didn't in fact say and producing that. Um, and and at the moment the deep fake technology is, is in some instances has been quite good that some people can't tell it um, but I do think a visual artist at this point in time would probably be able to pick it but a visual effects person but for the average person they might miss it and that's a concern um, for obviously uh, security. Um, I was going to say it's like a new form of identity theft. <laughs> it potentially could be and I think that yeah. this is the problem when we introduce new technologies um, of the possibilities I guess so but what what uh, what do you think the future of visual effects may hold as far as um, you know what might be possible down in in the future? I mean, I mean, I'm asking you to predict the future, but are you seeing anything new that's like I'm imagine it's constantly evolving? But are you seeing mm -hmm. any technologies or or effects that are quite new and unique that haven't been done before? Well, definitely. Um, okay, I guess. It has been done before, but it's more like it's becoming more of a mainstream of using depth data and volumetric cloud. So it's all about scanning, using as much real data and material in the real world and bringing that in for visual effects. So instead of replicating it manually in 3D, you know, you get a device. Nowadays, it's quite cheap, even this device. Go out there and scan and get that model immediately made within uh, software itself. So it's like photogrammetry, um, but it's becoming the technology for that is becoming more better at capturing the realistic look of the real world. So that's something that I believe the visual effects trend is heading towards. More real world data, less of the manipulated post-production visual effects. I guess that's similar approach to the deep fake. Yeah. Instead of mapping a face, you're actually actually mapping a real world, which then makes it easier to reproduce something because you have almost a visual makeup of how to reproduce it um, 
in a different environment than it wasn't there originally. But is that technology, and you might be able to answer this, you might not, is that technology actually something that is is similar to what they may be using in, say, a Tesla to to navigate the real world, would you think? Because the algorithms and that would be having to recognise objects and their position yeah. in the world. Yeah, it's like a, a form of um, AI. I would say, but that, as far as Teslas go, I don't really don't know. know. So that's yeah. all. Just that's all I can say. What what you're describing sounds similar to the way their actual technology in their vehicles work. Yeah. The concept of mapping the real world and identifying what's what, like people, and and there you're looking at. And this is where augmented uh, augmented reality also comes in because the feature or the main feature of augmented reality for the audience that doesn't necessarily know is that. It's it's that there's markers and indicators that tell the software this is something. Yeah. And when it sees it, it says show this or do this, and that's the whole concept. So when it's mapping faces and and objects, it's actually to a degree it's augmented reality, but you're not seeing it. The vehicle is, and it's saying this is this, this is that. So yeah. the the vehicles are actually using augmented augmented reality in a more practical sense than we probably are it's so, kind of like a game as well where like uh you know the inbuilt algorithms detect oh this object is an enemy this object is another player stuff like that so yes understood yeah so if if we hadn't evolved to that point with all our gaming we probably wouldn't yeah. have a lot of this technology and same as visual effects it, it's almost like there's a, a a combining of of all that knowledge coming into one sort of congruent congruency i suppose if that's a word that applies to this sort of thing so i noticed on your resume that you have worked with the unreal engine yes. so i i, I want to touch base on this because this is these this industry and the unreal engine which has had multiple i guess i'll say the word flavors but i'm probably using that or versions i'm probably using the wrong thing but it's really shaped 3d uh, gaming and 3D spaces and also the movie industry and, and any industry of 3D for, for probably uh, close to 20 years since the gaming company, I believe, Unreal actually came up with the first Unreal Engine, which a lot of the 3D games have been based on and continue to be based on. So how instrumental has that Unreal Engine over the number of generations it's been going, um, how important has it been to the industry? Uh, for visual effects, actually, it's been quite is becoming more popular, mainly for uh, preparing. Okay, so this is probably going to get technical. It's called this is production process called post vis, where after you shot the footage, you bring it into post production. Before you do the final visual effects, you lay it out in a three D environment. So Unreal Engine has been used for that um, quite a lot, especially based on my experience. I've done it before, um, and also just for capturing data. Uh, for VR is definitely the go-to tool for virtual reality development just because it is so robust and you can also modify um, certain source codes within Unreal to make it more suitable for your purposes. So, yeah. Yeah, uh, my understanding of it is that a lot of gaming studios actually use it as their primary and have for a long time rather than yes. create their own 3D engine. They have literally latched onto their company's 3D engine and the company did produce games for those that aren't gamers back in the early 2000s where they actually had their own game, but their engine was more popular than their game, I believe, and they yeah. actually got, ended up becoming a software 
giant, I suppose, in that industry as opposed to just a gaming company, which is quite interesting because the people that were behind the original Unreal Engine would have been um, probably not expecting that to actually occur. It was They just did such a great job on that that platform. I, I don't understand it beyond what I just said. The, the <laughs> engine. But, but so what, what is it, is it, is it a piece of actual software that allows people to render and create 3d things or is it um, happy? Like what's it actually? Nowadays? Yes. So because there, there was this, I believe it's a film called Adam or something. It starts with an A, but it was made entirely in Unreal. Um, so that kind of became an inspiration for a lot of studios out there who are trying to make a 3D film using just Unreal. Of course, they probably have uh, models coming in from other software and stuff like that. But yes, yeah, so mainly it's um, about creating as realistic a scene as possible using the Unreal Engine. That and also, um, as I mentioned, planning out the visual effects using Unreal. So that's mainly the two users that I know of when it comes to using that engine within the film industry. Uh, have you worked on any actual animation films where, there, where there's animation purely and there's no real world? It's all fully created? Uh, short films, yes, but not like blockbusters, no. So I've done a few animated short films. I believe one or two, one 2D and one 3D, just nice. Um, yeah, that's really about it. Do you ever go back and look at movies and say, old ones and say, how could I do that better? And and think like, have you ever watched it or do you just appreciate that those those people involved in that process um, and the visual effects director was doing the best with what they had at the time? Yeah, I believe that's probably the case. You're right. Um, you know, where it's about they had those resources at the time, so that's what it did. So, for example, The Thing compared to the recent remake, even though they had better visual effects for the recent ones, uh, the story or the kind of the way the things fl flow in that the older version actually is better. So, so yeah, I think it really depends on what they had at the time. <laughs> so you can't really blame them. Yeah. Do you think visual effects can be overdone? Because I, this is my opinion. I think the last version, I think it was of Godzilla, was. Oh right. Was I don't know if you saw it, but I thought that was way overdone. All these creatures all over the world just coming to life in yes. all different places. And there's really, for me, there was absolutely no storyline and you were just following these. Do you think that that that, that it can be done to death sometimes? Do you yeah. think? And I'm not, yeah. that's my opinion of that movie. I don't know what yours no, is. No, but... it's actually, I mean, a good visual effects artist would know when not to use visual effects because really, ultimately, in filmmaking, it's all about the story. You know, it doesn't care about the explosions, you know, whatever Michael Bay stuff is really about story. Um, so, yeah, so I, I'm with you on that, yeah. Is there anything you'd like to share with the audience about your passion and and if you think someone who's watching this might be interested in doing what you've done, like what advice would you give to someone who might be pursuing a career in visual effects? Well, um, basically passion and a lot of hard work. So passion because if you don't have passion for something, you don't have a strong why, you're probably never going to to be, to be brutally honest, never going to make it past the first barrier. Um, and also passion is something that is evident in your portfolio. So if you have a good portfolio, it's probably because that person is really passionate. So that's number one, have passion. Number two, work really, really hard. This might sound like a simple, the basic default statement people say, but well, it's actually um, true. Hard work is important, especially when it comes to visual effects, where there was one time, for example, I had a job which was, was 80 hours a week, you know, 80 hours a week, uh, non-stop work. Um, so you're going to have to put a lot of hours into it. And again, the thing that's going to sustain you through that 
mandatory hard work is passion. Um, and the other, I guess the other thing uh, besides about roles and visual effects as production, post-production roles, and uh, just to plug myself in there, I teach all those. <laughs> so you want to learn something? There you go. You can find me on the links attached to this. Look, I'll uh, finish up our time together there. I do appreciate your time. It's quite late for both of us. You're in Singapore. I'm here in Brisbane, Australia. And I really do appreciate you taking the time to share your story with us and the audience today on People With A Passion and wish you all the best and hopefully stay connected and I get to see some of the works that you'll continue to do. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. I hope you liked this episode. If you did, please give it a thumbs up and feel free to comment. If you haven't yet subscribed, hit the subscribe button and the notification bell to be advised of new interviews when they're uploaded. I hope you join us again sometime. Catch you later.